All right, well, hey, Two Cities family, very excited to be here with you tonight, and for everyone who's joining us online, we want to say welcome. Man, I am so excited to be here with you guys. It's been a while since I've been on stage, so if you don't know me, if you don't remember me, I'm Caleb, I'm one of the pastors here. Nice to see you guys again. And I want to say we're, we're diving into week three of our identity series, and so, hey, if you've been following along, you, you probably know this already, but one of the things that we're doing uniquely for this season is that every Monday, um, we're dropping you an email with a study guide that goes along with this series. We also post it up online, but we encourage you, go ahead and grab this. This is a way for you to go deeper into what we're talking about here on Sundays, for you to flesh that out personally. And so we think these are great. We would say, man, go ahead and grab that tomorrow when it comes out. And I want to tell you guys, I was just telling some of the people in the band over in the hallway before we started, I've been thinking about this series for years. This is something that we've been talking about. It's something that we've been planning. And I'm just excited to talk about it because we believe that the things that we're talking about in this series are going to be foundational things that we're going to be talking about in this church for years and decades to come. We want every single person who walks in and sits with us in this worship center or gathers together with us in our groups to talk about the things that we're talking about in these, this series these identities, because we think that this understanding of what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be a follower of Jesus is one of the most important things that we can talk about. And so, man, we are just excited to unpack that for you. And here's what we're not going to do in this series. We're not going to just give you a checklist of things to do as a disciple, because, man, if we did that, we just gave you checklists that would create this sense of legalism. But here's what we are going to do. We're going to remind you of who you are in Jesus Christ. Throughout this series, we're going to remind you of the identities that you have been given in him. Because, guys, we're not human doings. We're human beings. And so our identity is what informs our activity. What we do always flows out of who we are. And here's another way to help you understand what it means to take on an identity. When we take on an identity, it's simultaneously something that's immediate, but it's also an invitation for us as well. So just give you an example of that. Um, as soon as you get married, you take on this identity. When you say, I do, you immediately become a husband or a wife. But it's also an invitation to grow in that identity as well. And so over years and decades, you become more of what it means to be a husband. You become more of what it means to be a wife. And it's the same thing when you become a Christian. As soon as you declare Jesus is Lord, you immediately take on the identity of being a disciple, right? You immediately have that. No matter how bad a week you have, no matter how good a week you have, that identity holds true for you no matter what. But at the same time, it's something that Jesus invites us to become. And so over months and years and decades, we grow in these identities. We grow to look more and more like Jesus Christ, who perfectly encapsulates what it means to live out these five things. And so when we become disciples, we become worshipers. We become family, we become witnesses, we become stewards, and we become servants. And so tonight, if you have your Bibles, open up with me to Mark chapter 3. You can turn or type to that, and we're going to focus on the second identity. We're going to focus on what does it mean to be family. And I just want to start by asking a question for you guys. 
You know, when I say the word family, what is it that jumps into your mind? What comes to your mind when you think about family? For some of you, maybe it's a really happy thought because you grew up in a family that you love. You had a great experience growing up in that home. Maybe you still are really close with your parents and your siblings. You look forward to hanging out with them. When you think about raising your own family, you think back to you growing up and say, I want to do that again with whoever God brings it to me. And so some of you had great experiences, but for some of you, when you think about family, and you might feel a sting of hurt or bitterness or pain because you didn't have a happy experience. You know, maybe you grew up in a home with a father who was largely absent physically, mentally, emotionally. Maybe you grew up in a home that was just marked by crisis. Maybe you're still dealing with some of the wounds that you, you picked up growing up. And, you know, it breaks my heart because God made family to be the place that we grow and flourish. But for many people, that's not what we experience. Because here's the truth and the reality is that family is complex. I think TV shows capture that well. They speak to our experiences. That's why people inside the church and outside of the church are drawn to shows like Arrested Development or Modern Family or Blackish or, you know, Simpsons are for the older crowd, The Cosby Show, Brady Bunch, right? You know, they, we, we're drawn to stories about family because they reflect something that we can resonate with. And sometimes it's completely beautiful, and then other times it's completely dysfunctional, right? Because all families are messy, Every single family visits dysfunction junction sometimes, but unfortunately, some people break down there and never move on. And that's, you know, we believe that there's a reason for that. As a church, we look to the Bible, and we can see the reason for that is because of sin. You know, unfortunately, sin creeps into our household, and everything its tentacles touch just turns it, right? And no, no family can escape sin's fingerprints. That's the reality, and so we want to acknowledge that here tonight, but we're going to be talking about another family. We're going to be talking about the family of the church. And when the Bible talks about the church, it often uses this family language. It talks about God being our father. It talks about us as Christians being brothers and sisters in Christ. It talks about Jesus being our older brother. And if you start listening here at Two Cities Church, you're going to start hearing some of that family language. That's why when Donovan comes up and leads us in worship, you're going to often hear him address you as, hey, Two Cities family. Or maybe you start talking to some of the people like Ted, Ted Hill, who's one of our elders here, and he's going to call you brother or sister, right? Because in order for us to understand what it means to be the church, we have to have an understanding of what it means to be family. And I just want to acknowledge, man, many of us, the experience that we had in our own natural families has an effect on the way that we view the church. And so I want to acknowledge that today, but I want to say whatever experience you had, whatever preconceived notion that, that you bring tonight, I just want to say God has something for you to hear because Jesus radically redefines what it means to be family. It changes the way that we see family. It changes the way we interact with one another. And so we have to understand what that looks like. So that brings us to our first big idea tonight as we dive into Mark 3 is we have to understand the redefinition of God's family. The redefinition of God's family. So look with me in Mark 3, verse 20. It says this. Then Jesus went home, and the crowds gathered again. So he's attracting these large crowds of people, so large that they couldn't even eat. 
And it says in verse 21, and when his family heard it, and so I just need to stop and say, for many of you, we forget that Jesus was part of a family. He knows what it's like to be part of a family. You know, God didn't just drop Jesus in 30 years in to start his ministry. Jesus had brothers and sisters. They were probably annoying. He probably had sisters that did the ancient equivalent of singing Let It Go 172 times a day, right? He knew what annoying brothers were like because they would probably steal his dreidel from him, okay? And so Jesus knows what it's like having strain with siblings. Jesus' parents weren't sinless. Jesus' mom, Mary, Joseph, they were sinners too. And so Jesus knows and he can relate to us what it's like to be a part of family. And so look at me in verse 21. And when his family heard it, that he was back in town, look what they went to do. They went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. Now this might shock you if you have to understand the context that it's saying this in. And so, you know, Jesus' family had thought he completely lost his marbles, all right? Why is that? Well, because their experience with Jesus would have been 30 very normal years. But at the beginning of Mark, Jesus starts his ministry, and here's some of the things that Jesus that Jesus' family saw him do, okay? He attracts a little band of followers called disciples. They're seeing him do that. They see him go live out in the desert and do battle against Satan. They see him healing people and exercising demons. They see him gathering large crowds of people, but not like respectable people. These are the sinners and the outcasts of society that are following him. And the people that they would hope that he would get along with, the scribes and Pharisees, they hate him. By the end of chapter 3 in Mark, they already want to kill him. And so Jesus rolls back into town, and his family is freaking out. It says they go to seize him. That's a polite word for restrain him. You know, if this was a modern version, it would have said they went out to put him in a straitjacket. And so let's keep going. We'll see what happens. And so when Jesus' family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he's out of his mind. And we're actually going to skip down to verse 31. And uh, if you guys want to, go home and read 22 through 30. Um, It's a really interesting text with really interesting stuff. Um, And if you have any questions about it, here's what I want you to do. I want you to email Pastor David Vogel, all right? David at twocitieschurch.net. He would happily answer any of your questions that you have in that text. Okay, so verse 31 says, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, I want you to pay attention to that word, and standing outside, They sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Now, why were they outside? You know, it's probably a reasonable thing. He's got large crowds of people there, but the reason it's mentioned twice is because it's communicating something. You see, Jesus' family is standing outside judging him. It's the same language that's used in the story of the prodigal son. The son who goes and lives in sin, but then comes back and repents and he's restored. What happens after that? The older brother goes outside and stands judging his father and his younger brother. It's the same thing that we see Jesus' family doing with him because Jesus is calling people to come follow him. But what Jesus' family is doing in this moment is they're trying to call Jesus to follow them. You see, instead of allowing God to dictate his agenda for Jesus, they want to impose their own agenda on him. 
And that's what many of us do in our relationship with Jesus. We're okay with following him as long as things don't get too radical or crazy. But as soon as Jesus takes it too far, what we functionally do is we stand outside judging him and call him to our agenda. Jesus, you need to, man, change so you match my wants or you match my desires or my opinions. And so Jesus' family is actually a really good picture of us. If you want to know who you are in this story, it's Jesus' family. And so I want you to also just put yourself in Jesus' place for a moment. Imagine you're Jesus right now. And one of the things that we want the most when we're walking through hard times is that, man, our family would have our back. If you were doing what he was doing, you would want your family behind you, your parents, your brothers and sisters. And sometimes we forget the humanity of Jesus. If this would have been a really painful experience for you, this is a painful experience for him as well. And I say that, he can, he can relate to you. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever felt like you were living out what God was calling you to do, but all you felt was judgment from other people for doing that? If you can feel that, I want you to know, you can go to Jesus with that because he knows what it's like to be misunderstood. He was the misunderstood one. And so if you're in that place right now trying to live out what God's calling you to, or if you've been in that place, go to him because you can trust in him and relate to him in that. But let's see how Jesus responds to this interaction with, with his parents or with his mom and his, his siblings. Verse 32 says, and the crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And watch how he responds. And Jesus answered them and said, who are my mother and my brothers? Now that a statement would have been astounding and incredibly awkward for everyone who was sitting there hearing that. It's like, did he just say that? Oh, he did, okay. But to really understand and appreciate the weight of this, you have to understand the culture that Jesus is saying this in. Joseph Hellerman, is a, he's a New Testament scholar, and this is what he said about this passage. He said, in the New Testament world, the group took first priority over the individual. The group was more important than the individual. In Star Trek II, Spock says it this way, the good of the many outweighs the good of the one, all right? Now, for Spock, that was a matter of logic, but in the first century New Testament church, this was a matter of loyalty because the most important group was your family. Every decision that you made, everything that you chose to do had to get filtered through the question, how is this going to affect my family? But then Hellerman points out something even more interesting. This kind of blew me away when I read this. Back then, the most important bond, the most important relationship that you had was not with your spouse. Husbands and wife, not the most important relationship that you had. Your bond with your parents wasn't the most important. Your bond with your kids was not the most important. Hellerman says the most important relationship, the most important bond that you had was with your siblings. The most important relationship was with your brothers and sisters. And if you understand that point, it will radically change the way that you read Scripture when it talks about brothers and sisters. It radically will change the way that you interact and see the church and when it describes us as brothers and sisters because it was the most important. The most important thing was undying loyalty to your siblings. 
And so when people heard Jesus say this, they would have thought that it was complete treachery. But here's what we need to see. This was not payback at his family. This was not Jesus betraying them. We know this because the Bible's clear that Jesus was without sin. In fact, Jesus' brother James, who went on to be one of the greatest leaders of the church, he would have been here when this was happening, and he would have pointed back and said, no, what Jesus did was right there. Because Jesus is never careless. He's always careful in what he said and did. Now, Jesus cut his family here. That much is clear. But it was for their good, and it was for our good as well. You know, the Bible talks about Jesus as the great physician. And sometimes for a physician to bring about healing in somebody, they have to make an incision first. And that's what Jesus is doing here. When he says this question, he's revealing that family is not about physical descent. That's not what ultimately family is about. He's changing the paradigm for what it means to be a follower of him and what it means to be family. Because you know what? Jesus didn't just come to save us from our sins. Jesus came to redefine and make us a whole different kind of people. And that's why he drops this bomb here. In verse 34, he says, and looking around at those who sat around him. He's looking around just like I'm looking at you guys today. And he said this, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. And this statement is both comforting and confusing in many ways. But what it comes down to is Jesus is redefining what it means to be in God's family. And I want to make this note. Jesus is not endorsing that you abandon your physical family. Hear me say that today. I remember before I moved here, I lived in Louisville, and I was discipling a younger, a younger man who came from a very broken home, very difficult family. And we came to Christ. He saw the church as this new family that he got to embrace and just be a part of, and so much so that he just completely neglected his family. And we had to walk him through that and say, man, that's not what that means to be a part of this family. We still have to press into and love those people. In fact, Jesus went after the Pharisees for doing this very thing. It was very common for the Pharisees to neglect their aging parents all in the name of ministry. So Jesus calls people out for abandoning their families. And we see Jesus never abandoned his family because in his last moments while he's hanging, dying on the cross, one of the last things he does is he makes sure that his mother is going to be taken care of when he's gone. And so Jesus is not calling us to abandon our families. What he's doing is he's actually inviting us to invite our families into something greater. He's saying, I want you to invite your families into an identity that is eternal. Because the identity that we share with them right now is just temporary. My wife, Kelly, in eternity will no longer be my wife. I get that identity with her for maybe a couple decades, maybe longer, whatever that looks like. But when we get to heaven, she is no longer going to be my wife. Matthew 22 says there's no marriage in heaven. And so she's no longer going to be my wife, but she will forever be my sister in Christ. That's amazing. My three daughters, Lord willing, one day will no longer be my daughters, but they will forever be my sisters in Christ. And what God is inviting us to do is to have an eternal vision for our families. 
He's inviting us to have an eternal vision for the people around us because he's showing us that family is no longer about flesh and blood. It's something far greater than that. There's something more important. And so he redefines what God's family is, but he also gives us a new foundation for what it means to be in that family. So the second big idea is that there is a different foundation for God's family that we have to understand. What does it take to be a part of this family that Jesus is talking about? How do you get in? Well, he tells us in verse 35, he gives us the first clue. It says this in the first two words, for whoever. Who gets to be in God's family? Whoever. God's family is radically inclusive. The invitation is open to absolutely everyone. The famous preacher Billy Graham One of the lines that he's known to say over and over again is, for whosoever will believe. And you know where he was saying that? Billy Graham traveled all over the world, and he spoke to all kinds of people from all different nations and all different races and all different backgrounds, carrying all kinds of baggage, because he knew when he said this that God's invitation to be family was open to absolutely everyone. That's why he would say that over and over again, no matter who he was talking to, because God's desire for his family, God's desire for Two Cities Church is that when people on the outside look in at this worship center, when they look into our living rooms, they're going to see all kinds of people from all different backgrounds coming together, and they're going to ask the question, how on earth is this possible? What do these people have in common? The only answer can be Jesus. Jesus brings all kinds of people together. It's because of Jesus that unity can be found in the midst of diversity. Only in Jesus can the community's dividing lines be blended, faded, and erased because God's family is open to all of us. It's the most inclusive family that has ever existed or ever will exist. And so it's open to anyone for whoever. But we also see at the same time it's radically exclusive. Read with me. For whoever does the will of God. Because it says here, God's family are those who does God's will. And what does it mean to do the will of God? Well, we don't exactly get an answer here in this passage, but we can find it elsewhere. One of the best places we can look is John 6 and verse 28. Jesus says, I'll tell you what God's will is for you. It says this, Then the disciples said to Jesus, What must we do? to be doing the works of God. Another way we can say that is, what must we be doing to be doing the will of God? And here's what Jesus says to them. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So how do you do the will of God? God's will for you is to believe in the one whom he has sent, and that is Jesus Christ. Here's what that means to believe in Jesus. It means that you put your hope in him. It means that he becomes the center of your life. He is your Lord. He is your Savior. You believe everything that he says. You believe everything that he calls you to do. You believe what John 14, 6 says, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one can come to the Father. No one can experience a relationship with him. No one can know what it's like to be in the family of God apart from Jesus Christ. It's exclusive. But here's the beautiful thing. Anyone can believe. 
Absolutely anyone. We all have that ability. And as soon as you put that faith in him, as soon as you believe in him, you become part of a global, ancient, and future family. And God's family is now your first priority. The relationship with that family becomes your allegiance. It's your deepest relationships. And in that, God redefines how we interact with everybody and everything. And it's this redefinition, it's this foundation when Jesus said this, it shakes things up. It really shook things up for people who are hearing this in Mark 3. And guess what? It's still shaking things up today. Because there's a lot of things that people try to find their foundation in for their relationship with God. But I need you to hear this. You are not close with Jesus because your mom loved Jesus. You're not close with Jesus because you have bookshelves filled with books about Jesus. You're not close with Jesus because you went to a Christian school or a Christian college. You're not close with Jesus because your daddy or your granddad or your cousin was a pastor. You're not close with Jesus because you went to a church growing up. You're not even close to Jesus just because you come to this church. Those are no foundation for being a part of the family of God. The only foundation is the gospel. It's not dependent on you, it's dependent on Jesus Christ alone, and that should give hope to every single one of us, because if you're like me, you are a sinner far, far from God. But the good news is, is that everyone is invited, and nobody has a leg up. It doesn't matter if you came from a good family, bad family, sad family, or no family, because Jesus wants you in his family. Amen? That's the good news. Our belief is that Jesus Christ is our foundation. And when we trust in that, we become a part of this family instantaneously. It's instantaneous for us. But there's also an invitation that's just as foundational, that's just as important, and that's why we need to understand the last big idea tonight. We need to understand the marks of God's family. We need to understand what it looks like to be a part of God's family. Because when you join God's family, there's certain expectations for all those family members. Just like you join any family, you have to take on their commitments and their values. So just example, here's what it looks like to be a part of the Duvik family. One of our expectations is that every single day, we as a family are going to sit down to a meal together. We're not perfect, but pretty close. Every day, we sit down and we connect with one another over a meal. Another expectation is when we sin against each other, we're going to go to the person we sinned against and say why we're sorry and try to make it right with them. Another expectation is when my kids bring home candy, they tie the portion of it unto daddy, all right? <laughs> so every family has expectations. Here's God's expectations for the people that he has adopted into his family. His expectation is for you to look up to your older brother Jesus and see how he's modeling for us to live in God's family, and you know what? This is not obedience for salvation. That has to be very clear. This is not obedience for our salvation. It's obedience from our salvation. We do these things not to earn God's favor. We do these things because we have already all received God's favor. That's the difference between religion and the gospel. As we work from our salvation, not for it now. And you know what? Something that you need to hear is if you don't have that desire in you, and I want you to honestly ask yourself this, if you don't have a desire to follow what Jesus is showing us to do, you probably don't believe in him as your foundation. 
If you don't have a desire to look more and more like Jesus Christ with your life, you are probably not a part of this family. But here's the good news. If you do have that desire, that's a good indication that you are. And that's a good indication that God is working in your life. And so we have to look at God's word to understand, man, what does it look like to be a part of God's family? That's why it's important for us to spend time in the word, reading it diligently, saying, man, what's God calling me to as a, as a son or as a daughter? And here's the truth. It may be a little overwhelming. In the New Testament alone, there's 1,050 different commandments for his children, okay? But here's the good news. We have a good older brother who takes all these things and distills it down into two commandments. It's this, love God and love others. You know, a lot of families have signs of like their family rules hanging up in their house. If Jesus went out to his little carpenter workshop and carved up a little family sign, it'd say those two things, love God, love others. And the common denominator between those two commands is this, it's love. You see, love is the mark of our family. It's our coat of arms. It's the aroma that our family gives off. John 13, 35 says this, by, all, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And the love of God, the love of God's family has two components. Write these down. The two components that make up the family love that God has given us is affection and commitment. Affection and commitment. If this was Pastor Kyle's sermon, you know he'd use alliteration like relationship and responsibility. But it's my sermon. So we're going to say affection and commitment, all right? And the world wants to separate these out. The world wants to separate these out, but God is calling us to hold these things together because you know what? Affection without commitment is just lust. It's affection, love gone wild, it's fleeting, ultimately it's self-centered. And you can lust after things besides, you know, romantic relationships. You can lust after things or, man, uh, jobs. You can lust after status. But when you have affection without commitment, it's just lust. But you can have commitment without affection too. You know what that is? It's a contract. It's neglect. And ultimately, it's self-centered too. It says, I love you because I have to. Now, that's not going to fly on a wedding day, is it? Right? Imagine you're standing there at the altar, holding hands of your spouse, looking deeply into their eyes and saying, I take these vows because I have to. I take these vows because you're making me. <laughs> How many ladies in here just get melted, you know, thinking about their husband saying that? All right? No, no one wants that. But you know what? God's calling us to do something different. We're, we're called to hold those together, and Jesus is the perfect example of that, showing affection and commitment. Because you know what? Jesus doesn't need us. God doesn't need you. Jesus is not a needy person. But you want to know what? Even though he doesn't need you, he wants you. And that's why he pursues you. That's why he showers you with affection you know what? Jesus is committed to you as well. In his very last moments, he could have chosen not to die for us. He didn't have to die for you. I don't know if you know that. But Jesus didn't have to go to the cross for you. But you know why he did? It's because he loves us deeply. And even as he was hanging on the cross, he said, I am committed to you. 
The cross is the best example of God's affection and commitment to us. In the same way that Jesus demonstrates that for us, he's calling us to live that out for the people around us as well. And so Jesus is inviting each of you today to grow in love, to show commitment, to show affection to the people around you. Here's a good question. Which of those two things do you need to grow in the most? For some of you, it's commitment. Some of you have a hard time, man, just really tying yourself to a person or people or place. Part of it scares you. But Jesus is calling you to grow in your commitment to other people. Or maybe for you, it's affection. Maybe you're really committed to other people, but you just don't show them love for it. God is saying, man, would you grow in affection and find ways to demonstrate that to the people around you so they know how much you love them. You know, God's calling you to think about, man, where is it that he's calling you to show this kind of love? Is it in your home? Is it in your neighborhood? Is it in your workplace? Is it in your classroom? God's inviting us each individually to figure out what does it look like to show this kind of family love to the people around us. But not only is he calling us to do this individually, he's calling us to do it collectively because the church is the family. And so we as a family have to figure out how to show this kind of love to one another. And so we want, I want to talk about what does it look like for Two Cities Church family to demonstrate this kind of love. I'm going to give you a couple different ways of what I think that looks like. Number one, one of the ways that we show and demonstrate this kind of love is through church membership. Church membership says, I love these people. I have affection for them. I want to be around them. But at the heart of church membership is commitment. It's saying no matter what, listen, I'm in. I'm going to be a part of these people through the thick and the thin. We're going to work through stuff together, and we're going to work to walk closer with Jesus because I'm committed. I'm in. So church commitment shows, or church membership shows this kind of love. And I would say, man, if you in your heart are struggling with that idea of church membership, I would just ask you, man, wrestle with why is it that you are fighting against God's identity for you as a church family? Because you were never meant to just date the universal church. God's calling you to commit to a local body of believers that you can love affectionately and with commitment. God never called us to do just dirt church, to go out in nature, hang out there with God. You know, God's calling us, inviting us to hang out with other believers too. God's not calling you to just do family worship in your home for the next 15 years. It's an unfortunate reality that in the season that we're in, that's what we have to do. But when this is over, God is calling us to come back together, to be with our church family, because that's what God's family looks like. It's not just a nuclear little group of us, but all kinds of people coming from all kinds of places together. It's a way that we show the world what God's family is truly like. And so, man, if that's God's invitation for you today, if you have never taken that step with church commitment or church membership, we would say, Man, reach out to a staff member this week. I know Carrie would love to set you up and help you take your next step here at Two Cities Church to be a part of church membership. And I want to talk about one of the other big things I just want to talk about when it comes to church family is community groups. You guys, I love community groups. You guys know this. This is like one of the things I geek out over, all right? But it is the primary place that we get to grow as family here at Two Cities Church. 
And I'm going to be honest, it is going to be impossible for you to flourish as family if all you ever do is come and join us on Sundays. It's going to be impossible for you to grow in all the ways that God wants you to grow as family apart from a community group. Because it's in that small group of people that we really do life together. It's in that group of people that we walk through life as saints, sinners, and sufferers. And I want to talk about each of those because it helps us understand what it truly means to be family. And so we come together as saints, and what that means is that we believe discipleship happens in relationship. We say that here all the time. You cannot grow spiritually on your own in the woods somewhere. Discipleship happens when we're surrounded by other people because you know what? When we're around other people, we get to see them walking with God. We get to see them modeling what it looks like to be a Christian. When we're around other people who know us deeply, when we're around them regularly, they know our stories and they know God. They know how we can help each other take our next steps to look more like him. And so we come together as family so that we can live out and grow as saints together. And some of you are like, if that's it, I'm in because that's the easy part, right? <laughs> you know, if it was just us coming together as saints, that would be great. But here's the other reality. We're also a family of sinners. We're a family of sinners, and here's what that means. I don't know if you guys know this, but everyone here at Two Cities Church is a sinner, right? Everyone in our community groups is a sinner. So don't be surprised if you get in and say, you never told me. I'm surrounded by sinners here, all right? And so, but the question is, what do we do with that? What do we do when we realize that we are sinners and other people are sinners? Man, I had a surprise a couple years ago when someone switched out my beautiful, sweet, pure daughter, Karis, with an identical version of herself that loves to sin, all right? And it's been an interesting couple of years having to work through that. But you know what didn't happen when that happened? Me and my wife didn't say, all right, we're going to switch over to another family because we don't want to have to deal with that mess. We didn't do that. We stuck around, and we're figuring out what that's like. And you know what? When Karis found out that her daddy is also a sinner, thank God she didn't emancipate. I'm surprised. But you know what? We stick with each other. That's what it means to be family. But unfortunately, when it comes to the church family, many Christians treat that the opposite way. As soon as there's a hint of sin, as soon as there's a whiff of conflict, many Christians say, all right, I'm out. That's unfortunate reality. But Christians, Christians who have forgotten their identity as family are quick to avoid dealing with messy people and messy situations. But here's the truth. Christians who have embraced their identity as family are quick to seek reconciliation and restoration. That's the big difference. Those who have embraced their identity and those who have forgot it. But when you embrace that identity, you know what? You're going to commit to each other, no matter what that looks like. And you are going to have fights. You're going to have disagreements. But when that happens, you confess your sins. When that happens, you ask for forgiveness. And we extend forgiveness as well. You know what? Conflict in the church is a universal reality. But the power of grace should be transforming us in such a way that we see reconciliation as far better than holding a grudge on the people around us. And so family works through strangeness, selfishness, shame, and conflict. And you know what? Conflict is sure to emerge when you're living out your identity as family. Let me ask a question for the people who are in a community group, and that's most of our people in our church. Have you experienced conflict in your community group yet? If you have not, 
It's probably because you're in a new group or you guys are not fully living out your identity as family. And here's what God's calling you to do is live in that family identity. You don't have to pretend like you're not a sinner because when you're old, open and vulnerable and transparent, that conflict is gonna come out. But you know what? That's actually a good thing because God uses those moments to actually help you grow. God provides you with your community group to help you work through your sin and to help you walk more in the path of Christ. And so God gives us a good gift in our brothers and sisters in Christ. They're there for our good, even as we are sinners. And we also want to say God gives us family because we're all sufferers as well. And I've talked about this before, so I don't have to go in depth, but the question is not if you are going to experience suffering. The question always is when are you going to experience suffering? Because we all suffer. And here's one thing I have learned over four years of being a pastor and on staff here at Two Cities Church. In these four years, I've seen individuals and families walk through some very, very hard seasons. I've seen people, man, have a kid go through incredible sickness. I've seen families whose relationships fell apart. I've seen families walk through the, the death of someone very close to them. But you know what I've also heard in the midst of all of that is people coming to us and saying, I don't know what I would have done if I didn't have this family in my community group to walk with me through that time. And that's the exact word I've heard them use about their community group. They're my family. Because that's what they become when you are walking through suffering. You have people around you who love you and care for you and carry you in those times. You know, community groups, I believe, are one of the greatest gifts that God has given the church when it comes to flourishing in our identity as families. And I'll say DNA groups are a really great place too. If you don't know about DNA groups, they're groups of three to five men or three to five women where we just go deeper on all these things. It's where we make disciples. If you want to know what it's like, reach out to me. I can tell you what it looks like to get in a DNA group. But you know what? Just getting into church membership and community groups and DNA groups is not enough. Simply showing up is not going to be the answer for you to have a vibrant identity as family. What it's also going to take is for each and every single one of us to live with intentionality. None of this happens without disciplining yourself to be family. None of this happens if we're not taking the time to be intentional because if we're going to live a vibrant life as God's family, we have to commit to being intentional. And here's what that looks like. You're going to have to do some work to build or maintain these family relationships, family relationships in the church. You're going to have to do the work to get together for meals and to hang out all the time and to, man, be there for each other when someone is hurting. It takes intentionality to do that. What it means for us to grow as a family is that we have to make this identity a priority in our lives too. And if we believe what the series is saying, it's one of the top five things that God has called us to do, is to be a family. And so maybe you're going to have to say no to some other things in your life to really grow in this. Maybe you're going to have to say no to some really good things. But you know what? God is going to use that. And you make place for it on your calendars. You know, community is not just an event. It doesn't just happen in a two-hour time slot on Wednesday nights. Family is always looking for opportunities to come together with one another. And so we have to contend for community. We have to fight for family. And just as we come to an end, 
I just want to speak to the people. I've talked about this many times over the past, gosh, five, six, seven years about what it means to be a family. And sometimes I get pushed back on it. It's like, man, that sounds great. But it's just not for me. It's not for me. And there's usually two reasons why people say that. The first reason is that people really struggle with commitment. It's because they don't want to be tied down to a people or a place. Because you know what? They're afraid of being hurt. They're afraid of the hardships that come with it. And the reality is that family, living life as a family, is hard. I get that. And the other reason why people fight against it is because they've become unrooted or never were rooted in the love of the Father. They don't know what that's like truly to be family, or they've forgotten what that means. But until you're convinced of God's love for us, you're never going to be able to truly commit to other people. Until you are convinced of God's affection for you, it's always going to be hard to extend that affection back to the people of God. But you know what? God's love for us is one that is committed to us. God's love for us is one that is affectionate for us. And when we truly understand that, when we taste and see that for ourselves, then we're going to be able to extend that to the people around us. We're going to be able to extend that same affection and commitment. And so if you're an unbeliever here today, God's invitation for you is to believe that. Believe in that love. He wants you in his family. He's committed to you. And you can say yes to that today. And for those of us who are Christians, we have to remember that affection and commitment that God has for us. And when we do that, we can know what it's like to be family. We can extend that to the people around us. And you know what? If we all did that as a church, this city would be astounded when they looked at us. When we are a family, God will do great things in and through us. And that's his invitation for us today. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we're so grateful that you are a father. God, you're our father. And you adopted people that had no right to be counted as your family. God, we were sinners, we were rebellious. God, we were fighting, kicking, and screaming. But Jesus, you went to the cross with affection and commitment for us to bring us home so that we can know what it's like to be a part of a family, an eternal family. And God, we just want to say thank you for that today. God, for those of us that struggle with that, whether it's because of our family background or for whatever reason, God, we just pray right now that you would break through to our hearts and help us know what it is to be loved deeply God, through that, may we just see this church around us as our family. God, help us to commit and show affection to one another. God, that you would do great things. God, we thank you for our older brother, Jesus, who shows us what it's like to do that. And so we just pray that we would look more and more like him. God, it's all about him. It's all for, for him and his glory. Help us grow in this identity. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.